Hello, and welcome to the Freight Find podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm here with Ian Jeffries, President and CEO, Association of American Railroads. Now, Ian has been with the AAR for almost nine years now, and he took over as president in 2019. I last had him on the Freight Find in March 2022, almost a year ago, and obviously a lot has happened since then. And in our conversation, Ian and I will talk about the origins and details of the railroad labor dispute that came to a head in the fall of 2022, as well as some of the impact that shifting freight patterns from the West Coast to the East Coast has on railroads. I learned a lot in the discussion. I think you will as well. And then following my discussion with Ian, I'll be joined by Dr. Ian Amiyub to discuss the truckload market update. Before we get started, let me make a note that on February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. The NTSB continues to investigate the incident, and its leader has issued a public plea to let that play out. Nonetheless, the derailment and associated environmental impact continues to dominate national news. This recording with the Association of American Railroads President and CEO Ian Jeffries was recorded just shortly after that incident, before more was known about the derailment and associated environmental impact. Welcome back to the Freight Fine, Ian. Thanks for having me, Chris. Always a pleasure to join you. It's been a yeah, while. It's, it, yeah, it's been uh, March 22, so it's been 11 months. Not much has happened since then. It's been pretty quiet across the right. world. I can't think of any event that's happened sailing. since March of last year. Right, my gosh. It's been a, it's been a bit of a, a eventful, some might say, tumultuous year, right? Tumultuous. That, that I would go with that. So let's let's jump right into the main reason why I wanted you back. Let's talk about the 2022 railroad labor disputes in the fall. What's going on? What caused this? What's the main issue? Help us help us understand this. Sure. So I think to, to, to really get a sense of where we ended up, it's important to take a step back and, and take a look at maybe how we got there. Got it. And just for, for, for your viewers, or excuse me, your listeners' knowledge, our, our agreements are a little different than maybe your typical collective bargain agreement. They never technically expire. They come up for renewal. And so each contract builds on itself. And typically, you know, for better or for worse, uh, negotiations take uh, a few years. And this this round was no different. Uh, the, the, the round officially started uh, at the end of 2019. And of course, um, you know, as we all know, uh, the, the country and the, the, the world endured a, a global pandemic. And so 2020 was pretty much lost. Unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of these meetings are, are very much driven by in-person uh, sit-down negotiations, discussions, and, and that wasn't an option. And so the, the, the round took a lot longer than, than I think any party would have preferred it did. Labor did a pretty effective job of driving the process. Certainly a, a, a all-democratic Congress, a, a Democrat in the, the White House who uh, certainly no um, no secret that that President Biden is a very pro-worker, pro-union president, and labor was is cognizant of that and was effective at driving the timeline. And what do I mean by that? Um, so labor was uh, was a was a force in, in getting us into mediation at the National Mediation Board, um, which is typically a, a you know something that does occur. And that uh, that process went on for a few months, but uh, last summer, to to uh, you know, labor was an effective advocate at getting us released from mediation. Um, we were released from mediation in, in less of half, less than half of the time that we are typically in mediation. 
And, um, you know, you could point to any reason why that that may have occurred. Um, but uh, then, you know, we, we had a, a presidential emergency board um, established, and this is all kind of under the terms of the Railway Labor Act. So right. there's, okay. there's a long, arcane, multi-step process, all with the goal of preventing a work stoppage. So, you know, President Biden appointed a, a, a panel of arbitrators in his presidential emergency board, a panel of extremely experienced, uh, knowledgeable arbitrators with prior PEB, prior rail PEB experience. And we had a week-long hearing. Each side presented its priorities, okay. and the, the 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 role of the PEB is to develop a report using its expert judgment to determine what a what a fair outcome of a, a deal is. Mm-hmm. And so that report was issued. And I'll just tell you historically, once you get to the point of a PEB, the PEB acts, and that's kind of the deal. So what? Um, me, what, is, how, what is what does PEB stand for? Presidential Emergency Board. Board, okay. President Biden appoints a panel, or the president, in this case, President Biden, appoints a panel of independent expert arbitrators Got it. who have a deep experience in this field. And so the management side and the labor side we had a week-long, all-day, every-day hearing where everyone is presenting their sides and their priorities and what they think an agreement should entail. And then it's up to the, the PEB to develop recommendations for, okay, we've heard everything, we've absorbed it, we've evaluated, and here's what we think of an appropriate deal is. So that process happened. And historically, the PEB occurs, and that's the deal. And the PEB report came out and was historic in in many ways. And uh, the railroads were public and saying, okay, well, we can live with that. We're prepared to reach agreements with our 12 unions. And we actually have 13 contracts, but 12 unions um, based on the terms of this agreement. And what what was in that agreement or what was in those recommendations? So one, 24% pay increase, the largest pay increase in five decades in this industry. Maintenance um, of the best in class healthcare of basically any industry in this country with some of the lowest employee cost shares. Um, so, so highest coverage, highest quality coverage, lowest employee cost shares, additional time off, specific priorities for, for certain unions were included. For example, uh, the BMWE, the maintenance of way employees, their number one priority going into this round, and this is their words, not mine, was uh, basically a modernization and improvement of their uh, their lodging and meal expense uh, recovery when they travel because they're out on the road a lot. And, right. and that was... That, that was included, big win. There are provisions that require at the local level, so the railroad by railroad level, uh, for developing a much more predictable scheduling cadence for engineers and conductors. Because okay. as a 24-7 operation, we're running trains all day, all night. The cadence of uh, shifts is very unpredictable for those employees. And so there's a direction to to negotiate out a more scheduled structure on the railroad by railroad basis. So each railroad is going to do that independently, but with a backstop of binding arbitration. Again, big deal. Uh, the president of the BLET, the 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 president of the locom, uh, excuse me, the the um, engineers union, he said that that would allow him to negotiate up to 90 scheduled days off for his employees. So. Mm-hmm. Big deal when it comes to quality of life, when it comes to schedule predictability, which again was that that class of employees number one issue. You know, we don't yeah. we don't our schedule. We feel like we're on call twenty four seven, and that's just not that that doesn't work in today's society. I want to get sure. to my my kids' softball game, baseball game. I want to be present in my family. I want to know when I'm going to go to work. So again, big deal. 
and there's some other stuff included in the deal. Those are just a few highlights. But so the railroad said, okay, we're prepared to reach agreements and got some pretty quick out of the gate. And others took longer on negotiating with with the leaders of each of the union. But but let me make sure I understand. So the PEB makes its recommendations and it's not like two parties negotiating now. There's what, 12 unions and six railroads? Right. Do all the railroads talk with one voice? Are you the representative for the railroads? Uh, yes, they talk with one voice. I am not the lead negotiator. Okay. We have an, an organization called the National Rail Labor Conference, who that's their job. is. And, right. and so at the beginning of the round, six of the class ones said, OK, we're going to negotiate as one for the national agreement. Um, Twelve unions. At times, the unions work together. At times, they work independently. Okay. At the end of the round, everyone was negotiating independently. And so we were able to get 12 tentative agreements with the, the negotiators for the unions. And that kind of came down to the wire, got a little got a little exciting. Uh, the administration yeah, yeah. was involved and Secretary Walsh, uh, the labor secretary, was intimately involved in basically keeping everybody at the table until until some uh, what's called tentative agreements were reached. So we got 12 tentative agreements. Well, once you get the tentative agreements, typically that's kind of been a... Um, Kind of the end of the deal, the, you know, they go out and right. tell their members why the agreements they negotiated are, are good agreements and those get ratified. Well, uh, this time around, we had eight of 12 unions ratify, nine of 13 contracts ratify, and uh, we had four that didn't. Hmm. And so, you know, sat down, kept talking, and you're, you're under a timeline at that point once you right. get to that in the process where... There are very specific time intervals at which either party can seek self-help. So what does that mean? That means either a union can strike or a railroad can lock its employees out. Again, that is that is not a goal, a desired goal for anybody in the process. And despite best efforts, we were at an impasse with the remaining few unions under an ever uh, diminishing clock before self-help would be available. And Typically, in what's called pattern negotiating, again, this you know, it's we're 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 negotiating twelve, actually thirteen contracts, twelve unions. Once you hit a majority, that kind of sets the path for okay, right. like this is the this is where this is going to end up. And we were we we weren't able to get there voluntarily with the with the remaining few contracts. And Congress, as it has done over ten times historically. Right. intervened and said, okay, we have a clear pattern, we have a majority, and we're going to finish this out because there's too much of a risk to the economy, there's too much of a risk to, to rail customers to to have a strike. And so that's what was done. Now, and this is a long, this is a long-winded answer because it's a long, complicated process, but, you know, it was very clear that perhaps what was negotiated by the the, the lead negotiators for the unions and uh, maybe what some of the priorities were by the rank and file that there there was a disconnect out there that there were still some remaining priorities with the rank and file and it has been a tough few years there's right. no denying that at all you know our folks were working 24/7 throughout the pandemic and values change priorities change especially when around last three years and you have a global pandemic that 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 kind of resets the the priority mm-hmm. list and so, at the at the close of the round, you know, there was a lot of talk about about sick leave. And, right. you know, let's be clear about one thing. These agreements are the results of priorities. And so while some unions have a traditional set of paid sick days, others have negotiated other things over the years. They've negotiated longer term supplemental sickness benefits that kick in after a few days. 
And so the, the, the types of leave, my point being the types of leave that each union has is a direct result of priorities in prior bargaining rounds. And so my point at the end of the round is that if a union or unions wanted to have a, a discussion about really making significant changes to how their particular leave is structured, that it was not appropriate to do that at the zero hour of multi-year round after we have a, a majority pattern in place. That I, our, our railroads were happy to sit down and look at these issues holistically after the round was over. And that's where we are now. That's okay. exactly what's happening. Each me, railroad is... Go ahead, please. Yeah, let me ask you. Yeah, this, is, this, is, this is great. So, because in the press, if you read this, it's yeah, it sounds like it's two entities targeting, and you're not giving enough sick days. So, is it? Does the railroad have to railroads have to give the same agreement to all thirteen contracts, all twelve unions, or can they be different? Is it thirteen that, separate negotiations? That's a great question. And so, the the deal that was put in place last mm -hmm. fall is for what's called national handling. It's the okay. national round. Got it. So now the work moves to the individual railroad level okay. and that's not abnormal the individual railroads and their unions on property they're always working on things in between the big national rounds and there's a good reason for that because a an employee in southwest georgia may have different desires needs priorities than an employee in northwest oregon and so that is what's happening now. Individual railroads are engaging with their their unions on called on property okay. to work, continue to work through these remaining quality of life issues vis-a-vis -vis sick leave, vis-a-vis -vis schedule predictability, other issues. And that's the way it should work via collective bargaining, via sitting down at the table, working through issues that are important and priorities to your employees on property. Okay, so it sounds like it's not one negotiation, it's one to 12, but then it turns 12 times six, 72 separate negotiations, each railroad with each of those. And I'm sure that not every union is represented at every railroad. Is that a fair statement? Not most of them are. Most of so them are. 70... And, but sometimes you're doing that, maybe sometimes you're doing that, you know, with a few at a time. And But that you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's a complex, multi-factored, multi-piece process that never ends. And... It cannot be oversimplified. But if you do the on property, does it still then have to be ratified? It sounds like the the negotiators for the unions, maybe a mis misconception here, don't really have the authority to approve. They can tentatively approve, but the strength is still in the ratification process for the local union. The uh, I would just say that think things work perhaps differently at the local level, and okay. it's not my place to get into kind of the ins and outs of how a railroad and a, a local union would come to an agreement on something. Okay. Okay. So, so it's kind of a different animal than the big national yeah. agreement that we just went through. So, so what you're telling me, it's not as black and white as it's said in the headlines of main press. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I know me? you'll find that. I know you'll find this shocking, but it is not nearly as simple or black and white as it is, uh, as it is laid out to be in a, a one minute news story. Yeah. So, did this essentially kick the can down the road, or do you think it's leading to solving these problems? The the, the, not uh, the problems, well, but the the disagreements. Sure, sure. Well, one, I think, again, there's a lot of discussion about what may not have been included in the the national agreement last year. I do think it's important that we reiterate the historic value of that contract. Average and wages, average wages and benefits are now one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year for a, a rail employee. 
you know, that's pretty good. That's top 7% of any industry out there right. with some of the best healthcare available. Did it kick the can down the road? No, it absolutely didn't kick the can. Right. It, it kicked, it, it moved things to the, the local level. Okay. And where those will continue. And then guess what? We'll be back at the national bargaining table in 2025. And so just as there has been every round prior, there's an opportunity to re-engage on issues of import to both sides. And we go through this again. It's an evolutionary process that never ends. So what were the, so 25, my gosh, that's two years, yeah. right? What was this right. supposed to be? November 25. So is it every five years? It's whatever the, the length of the extension is. And typically okay. it's been five years. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's so, I mean, the amount of workforce that falls into unions has been shrinking as a percentage for decades. So it becomes right. less and less common to see this, but there's some other heavily regulated or heavily unionized industries. And I'm curious if you think those will have an impact on railroads. So, so for example, the West coast longshoremen, uh, they have a potential, they're renegotiating now and there's potential for a strike this summer. Would the, how would that impact the railroad? Sure. Well, let me hit on your your first point about okay. declining union participation and you know just being less of a core issue, especially in the public eye. Our industry is absolutely better off by being fully unionized. Absolutely better off, you know. And our employees deserve our thanks and appreciation every single day because they go out, they move the freight that our customers and communities need, and they do it safely across every type of geography and every type of weather and every time of day. And yeah. so that cannot be undersold. And I'm proud that we are a fully unionized industry. It is a strength to our our industry. And of course, we have our we have our issues. We're always going to have our issues and we bump heads sometimes. And that's just the kind of the the nature of the of the relationship. But we are in a better spot because the, because of our unions, because of our employees. So Let I just I want to make about that. clear about that. That's that's great. Sure. As the gap between management and unions, is that closing? Is it it's is it do you think the direction because I, I do a lot of work with uh, trucking companies and uh, truckers uh -huh. used to hate railroads and vice versa. Right. And now they've kind of seen where they fit. JB Hunt's uh, moved in or more. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful thing. Better now. Are, yeah. are the directions of unions and management, are they, could they be characterized as getting more aligned or is it, a, is it a constant? Does it not change? How, how do you, how would you care? I, I think it evolves and ebbs and flows. And certainly the last few years have been significantly challenging and there's work to do. And yeah. that's, that's work that's occurring now. Because okay. there, there are lots of things that we can work on collectively for the greater good of the industry, for the employee, for the company. And um, it's important to have a positive relationship. And there's more work to do there in certain cases. And, you know, folks are cognizant of that and working. Got it. So Got it. you asked me about, okay, ILWU. You know, I, I read the news about that as, as much as you do and kind of just keep an eye on it. Um, obviously, their contract's been expired for six, seven months at this point. Everyone seems to be pretty calm. You know, for us, we we move a heck of a lot in and out of uh, the West Coast ports. So, right. again, a work stoppage is not something that that needs to be contemplated and certainly hopefully something that that isn't going to be complicated. We want to see a get, deal get done. It's important for stability, for certainty, for for shippers, customers, et cetera. And so uh, I'm pleased that the tone has been calm, that both sides seem to be uh, working in in uh, in good faith to to try to get something done, but you always feel better, I think, when an agreement's in place. Sure. Um, you mentioned UPS, the Teamsters, uh, yeah. Sean O'Brien, I think, is yeah. leading that negotiation this summer. What 
that 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 would have a fairly large impact, would it? Is that true? Fair? Well, it certainly would. UPS is our largest company or customer as a as an industry. Right. And yeah, that one. And, and again, that's that's a situation where you have a contract that expires and that, you know, that has kind of a, a finite drop dead date of you either have a contract or you don't call me. Uh, I think I'm realistically optimistic that there's always an, uh, there's always a path forward. And it, it doesn't mean there won't be choppy waters, but there's a path forward there. And uh, I'm confident that both sides can can work through that. You know, something that that is interesting. So we operate, as I mentioned, under under the Railway Labor Act. So do the airlines, and they're in mediation right now as well. And so part of my message to Congress last year, and continues to be to Congress, that you know we need to be careful about adding something for one stakeholder or another in an agreement via legislation, because one, other industries are watching who are under the same law, and two. If you start doing that, it really disincentivizes voluntary agreements at the end of the day. If one party or the other thinks that, you know, it can run to to Congress to to get more added, it's a disincentive to to doing the hard work to to get a voluntary agreement done. No, that make that makes sense. Let me ask about some other related questions away from unions. During the okay. last year, um, there's been a greater shift of uh, freight going to the East Coast versus the West Coast. A lot of shippers, right. you know the. 100 plus ships piled off of LA, Long Beach. But the question is, how is that affecting? Because the the infrastructure is not set up as well to receive that level of volume coming in on the Gulf Coast or the East Coast immediately, whether it's drayage, sure. chassis, or for rail. What What's the railroad's take on this? Do they Is this a blip? Right. Is this going to settle back to the West Coast? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think it probably depends on who you talk to, but w- one thing's well, clear. I'm talking to you, that, I'm talking to you. Yeah, you're the well, voice. <laughs> then I guess you'll get my response. Um, <laughs> look, one thing's clear that container traffic, intermodal traffic, it, it's it, it's not like we're going to have a, it, I mean, it'll kind of bump along here maybe in the next year or so, but it's only going to continue to grow. Right. And so I think there's an opportunity that it's not a zero sum game that, you know, the pie is increasing overall. Have have permanent, have we seen structural permanent changes in shipping patterns because of the backups we saw at uh, the um, at the California? <clears throat> some say, yeah, some of that traffic's permanently going to move. Others say, you know, not particularly. I'll, I'll tell you one thing I think that mm-hmm. that is likely so what we saw during the backup and during the the fever to get empties back to Asia was traffic that would typically move out of the LA basin on rail to the center of the country was right. being, uh, those containers were being basically dumped into warehouses, the contents dumped to get the empties back and then trucked out. And so I think there's an opportunity for a shift back to the traditional, okay, we're going to move this stuff inland loaded um, on train. Again, taking trucks off the highway, allowing us to do what we do well. Our yards in the center of the country have, have reached yeah. a, a better level of equilibrium. We were seeing backups due to, you know, again, lack of drage truckers, lack of chassis, lack of warehouse space to put things. And so a lot of that, uh, we've worked through a lot of that backlog. So the, the system is functioning in a much more fluid way. And so yeah. there are opportunities there, even if there isn't a higher level of international traffic coming in necessarily. Yeah, there seems to be a natural tension. Much more transloading happened during the pandemic. Yeah. And the question, will that continue or not? But we'll we'll, we'll see how that right. 
how that goes. And you mentioned, you know, the the partnerships that you're seeing with uh, between rail and trucking. You know, historically, we we had a lot of knife fights. Um, we've definitely you're you're right to to see that to pick up on. We, we've moved on past a lot of that. Um, of course, we compete in a lot of different areas, and we want to take trucks off the highway. But we're also really strong partners, and there's that 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 reaches all the way into Washington D.C. I just te- testified next to my friend Chris Spear, who's the president and CEO of the American Trucking Associations, last week in the House, and that was a theme we both hit on. And that's that's work we've done on the policy side, but also just a recognition that we rely on each other and we sure. we function better as a whole when we're both working together. No, that makes sense. That makes sense, and that is a change over the last 10, 15 years that's it i'm proud uh, proud of it personally so yeah yeah let me ask one last question because i know you only i only have you for a couple more minutes autonomous vehicles there's a lot of press here about what's happening and and my my take is the further you are away from it the more confident you are that it's going to happen what's your take on autonomous trucks at this point we'll talk about autonomous vehicles within the rail system later so I would just say my 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 top line thesis is that I'm I'm pro innovation, I'm pro technology, especially when it comes to safety improving technology, efficiency improving technology. I believe that all modes should be treated equally, and that we should operate on a level playing field, and we should all be able to develop and deploy new technologies via use in pilot programs, via uh, regulatory waivers that allow us to to build out data sets. And, and demonstrate that we've got a new way of doing something that advances safety and efficiency. And so what does that mean? That means that we need a partner as a regulator, not an adversary when it comes to trying out new things. So you talked about autonomous vehicles in particular. Look, there are massive safety benefits to be gained by increased technology and in, in commercial trucks. There's no denying that whatsoever. And it's something that should be a, a goal. I do question... Um, I guess I don't want to increase automation and driver lists are two very different things in my mind. Absolutely. Um, and I think we're a long way away from from not having a, a driver in the cab. And I don't even know if that's that's a goal or an interest of a lot of uh, industry executives. But there, there are safety benefits to be gained. And, you know, work operating on the nation's highways. You're intersecting with the traveling public. You're intersecting with families every day. And so no one should get in the way of uh, safety enhancing technology. But that should be the case for every single mode out there. You know, we we have regulations on the books that are from the steam engine era. And, uh, you know, we run into situations where we've got a new technology that allows us to do track inspections with significantly up to 90 percent more effectiveness. But we're required to, to have an individual walk in looking at the track with uh, the naked eye. So we just we need to we need to have partners across industries with regulators who are championing innovation to improve safety. Yeah. So so it's funny. Um, I used to do a, I was with a software company called Logistics.com, and the, the pre- president of that was John Lanigan. If you knew John, who mm-hmm. started with Schneider, actually Coast Guard Schneider, then was at BNSF as chief marketing officer, and he used to joke right. about railroads. He said sometimes we're stuck with infrastructure from the '60s, the 1860s, and so yeah. some of the well, policies are the same. Because it, railroads is a unique industry in the United States because it, it was at the forefront of a lot of issues, good and bad, throughout the, the, right. the centuries. But uh, Well, yeah, and we are the originally federally, federally regulated industry. Right. So, uh, you know, there's a long history there. You're responsible and, for time zones. Come on. This is why yeah. time zones are put in there. My, my point, though, is that there are a lot of opportunities for, I 
won't even say deregulatory actions. I'll say regulatory modernization actions. Like the regulations need to keep up with today. And that's not just in our industry. That's across all industry. And that's and, a big challenge. You must face this as well. It's not just one set of regulations. Every state has it in every age. So there's layers of. Yeah, I mean, we, we are a little different there because when the feds act on something, it largely preempts the states because of interstate commerce issues. And so generally, if the FRA, for example, Federal Rail Administration has regulated on an issue that address that that preempts all states. And so because we operate, you know, it's interstate activity. So we can't have, you know, 50 different regulations or we'd never be able to function. Which is something the trucking industry faces because they are affected state by state. And so that's why most right. of the, uh, from what I've seen, most of the pilots for autonomous are Arizona to Texas because it's flat, it's sunny, and they're more regulatory uh, uh, friendly uh, for this. To, right. To A lot of open space out there too. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting to see because it's, I, I think it's coming. It's coming in niches. It's not going to be, if you think back to like RFID was going to take over the world. 20 years ago and it's right. got its niche right and i think autonomous right. is starting to find its niche we'll see how it how it does but do you see it as an opportunity or a threat to railroads in general for their intermodal traffic i think it could be both mm. um again it all depends on how our regulator allows us to thrive and uh what 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 the, the trucking industry is allowed to do and what the goals are but by and large, uh, I look at increased use of technology as an opportunity for all industries. They just have to be in a position where they can deploy it. Yeah, yeah. And no, do the it amount safely. of technology yeah. increased in, especially trucking, has has gone tremendous within the cab. And that's definitely changed yeah. the way that owners operators. And it's such a different industry from what you offer railroad, such a long tail of owner operators. So it's interesting to see how these two right. transportation industries work within each other. Yeah, you're right. And look, we, we've got a massive value proposition right now when it comes to environmental impact, to helping our, our customers reduce emissions. You know, we've I gave a speech earlier this week and millions upon millions of gallons of diesel and pounds of CO2 have been avoided because of our technological advancements. And we can can only continue to to thrive there and make more progress. And so, again, operating on a closed, largely closed private network, we've got the highest rated infrastructure of any type in the year of, of in the country, according to American Society of Civil Engineers. We've got the lowest environmental impact, and we're continuing to work that uh, to further improve. We operate safely, union jobs, big infrastructure investment, and so. You know, we're here for the long haul and yep. just uh, we, 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 traffic ebbs and flows. Things go up and down, but uh, we're we're working for the future. All right. Well, thanks, Ian. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Yep. Okay, everyone, please stay tuned to hear the market update with Dr. Enam Eu. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for February 23rd, 2023. In today's market update, we'll discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are flat, spot rates down 1%, replacement rates negative 11%. This means the new contract rates are about 11% below the rates being replaced. 
On the temp control side, active rates are down 1%, spot rates down 5%, and replacement rates negative 9%. On the intermodal side, active rates flat, spot rates up 3%, and replacement rate is negative 4%. Finally, on the flatbed, active rates are down 1%, spot rates up 3%, and replacement rates negative 5%. So, Inam, it looks like the replacement rates are still trending negative across the board. How long do you think that's going to continue? That's been going on for, gosh, six months now. Yeah, I would think that maybe until the end of second quarter. I mean, because there'll be some, uh, not a majority, but there are the shippers that do bids in the second quarter. So I would say that maybe they might still see some uh, negative numbers. But I would think that maybe the third quarter is when you see things start either even out or, you know, see some rises. Yeah, because it's been high single, low double digits for, gosh, for a couple quarters now. That's uh, But spot rates, we saw in January that spot rates were creeping up again, but it turns out that was more of a blip than a, than something sustained. Spot rates are still bouncing around? Yeah, I think I think it's, it's showing, uh, you know, when you generally see bouncing around, you know, it's it's it starts bouncing just before it's turned. So you know, uh-huh. maybe maybe it's, we are getting to the bottom of it. But we still have a we're still in an inverted market, right? For both the drive-in and temp control, contract is lower than spot. So how is actually the other way around? Spot is lower than contract. So how big is that gap? Is that growing or is that steady state? How's that moving? Actually, you know, other than like the, the blip that we saw in January, it's it's been in that 40 to 35 cents range between um, reefer and van. So it, today also what we see today is about 36 cents across uh, reefer and van. So it's it's been somewhere in that range uh, for the last, I would say, maybe quarter plus. Okay. So this is still good news for shippers, right? The rates are still down and they're still coming in new contract rates are coming down below and fuel dropped again so what do you think the impact of that's going to be yeah it's it's a couple of cents drop in fuel surcharge so it, the overall fuel dropped by about 10 cents uh, last week to this week which is about a couple of cents lower on the fuel surcharge side so it's not a significant change but uh, but still um, at least it's staying steady or dropping not going the other way all news is positive for shippers at this point as far as the transportation. Um, the market's still soft and, and looks like good things for them to do. Any any last thoughts on the state of the market, you know? No, I think from the shipper's perspective, I think, you know, anything and everything that you can do to align good partners at this point in time and make strategic decisions for the next uptick, I think this is the time to do it. All right. Well, this concludes the Truckhold Market Update. Thanks, Enam. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on the Freight Vine or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.capless at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at the Freight Vine, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. 